Hebrews chapter 11 in our text this morning will be verses 5 and 6, primarily verse 5. And we come to Enoch this morning. And this is in contrast to what we looked at last week in looking at the life of Abel, the righteous man. And in contrast to Abel, that faced death for trusting in Christ, we see Enoch who was spared from death by trusting in Christ. And in the story of Enoch this morning, because he's briefly mentioned in Scripture, but what a rich testimony in those brief instances we have of this remarkable man. We see that in his trusting of the Lord, and in the Lord taking him, that we are reminded of the future hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the same hope that Enoch had in Christ. Let us hear the word of God in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the reading of God's word, and may he bless the reading of it. It's remarkable that in verse 5 you see at least five references to the fact that the Lord took Enoch. And in, in this references, he took him in a supernatural sense. That there's something different, there's something unique in the, in the redemptive history that we read in the Old Testament. There's something unique that takes place with this Enoch. In fact, we see that only Enoch and Elijah were said to be taken in this remarkable manner. It's unique, it's set apart, and it's supposed to make us stop and pause and consider it. What does it mean to say that he was taken? There's many different viewpoints on this. Some say that he was taken, that he died a, a regular death, and that's what it means. The Lord took him, and it was by death the Lord received him. Some say something to the effect of, well, his body was left here. It's referring to his, his soul, but it says he was not found in the text. In other words, he went to heaven this is his translation. This is where he, Enoch, received his glorious body that is fit for eternity. What happens to him is a retransformation of his body to receive that body that we will one day receive in the resurrection. It's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does that perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And what Enoch experiences is that change. What he experiences is that that hope that we have of what we will receive, as Paul describes it to the church at Philippi, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. 
So he received his glorious new body that would be fit for eternity. It was fit for heaven. So what he experiences is something that we don't yet get to experience. Now there's many objections to this view and from 1 Corinthians, people will reject that because we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So many will say, well, isn't, isn't Christ the first fruits? How could we apply this to Enoch? Well, Christ is the first fruit of those that have been raised from the dead. Enoch wasn't raised from the dead. He was taken live, and he was given his eternal life. He did not see death. He did not taste death, but the Lord spared him from death. He received eternal life. He received his glorious new body, the same body that we will receive in the resurrection. This brings up the question, why did the Lord do this for Enoch? Why would he bestow such a tremendous blessing upon this man? When there was others that demonstrated faith, why did he do this for Enoch, but whereas Abel was murdered? Why, why is it the Lord didn't spare Abel, the righteous man? Why did he do this for Enoch? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us specifically why, but uh, there's a few things that we can surmise and we can, we can come to this conclusion. He did this because of Adam's death. What do I mean by Adam's death? Remember, Adam lived for over 900 years. He was alive at the time of Enoch. And Adam had been doing something, as we have seen since we got into this chapter and we've seen elsewhere, Adam had been preaching of the promised seed. Adam had been preaching to his children of the coming of the Messiah. Adam had preached about the promise. Adam had preached both to the, the fallen line of Cain that rejected it. He, he preached to the righteous line of Seth. As we saw last week, he had preached to his two sons the necessity of a blood sacrifice, the necessity of giving thanks to the Lord for his provisions. He had preached to his children about the necessity of worship as they gathered at the appointed time to worship God. Adam had been preaching that there was a future life in which we could have the curse removed from us. And so Adam's death comes about. I was listening to Dr. Beakey's sermon on Enoch this last week, just for my own edification, and he said something that just was interesting for to think about. Can you imagine the funeral procession for Adam? There would have been thousands of people there, all his children. It was, this would have been a significant event. The first man and the, the source of all of this other life who dies. And you can also think that the wicked line of Cain, when Adam dies, boy, Grandpa was getting kind of crazy with that message about the coming promise, wasn't he? And now we see Uncle Enoch's taken up that message of eternal life. Enoch now is preaching about the coming Messiah. Enoch is preaching about the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. And so you can imagine the mocking 
that would take place. How Adam's death actually brought about a question of the promise of eternal life. What is of this promise? Where is this promise that Adam had given us? He's now dead. And so the wicked line of Cain, the seed of the serpent, would have mocked that righteous line of Seth and would have mocked the message because that's what Satan does is he mocks the word of God. And so Enoch himself in being taken is the confirmation of the promise. So God's mercy to Enoch and to the line of Seth is seen here. This is why the patriarch, the church father, Tertullian, called Enoch the pledge and witness of eternal life. In other words, when the Lord takes him and it says he's not found, that presumes that people are looking for him saying, what happened to Enoch? It's a witness to the promise. And so Enoch's translation was a testimony of God's promise. He was not, he was not found because God was bringing about his promise. What a wonderful reminder to see that the Lord continually encouraged his people. And so in other words, this was not just merely for the benefit of Enoch, although Enoch benefited from being removed from the wickedness, the mocking, and all of those things. It was not so much for his benefit, but it was for the benefit of that continuing line. That they would have the seal and that testimony that God's promise was going to come about. And we have to recognize that same promise remains for us that are in Christ. And I hope we recognize that. That those that are in Christ have the promise of a future resurrection body that will be fitted for eternity. A glorious body like our Lord. You know, Enoch in many ways reminds us that the pain we have now in these bodies is but momentary. If we complain about it for ourselves, just imagine living for 365 years with aching knees. <laughs> Enoch was taken as a seal and as a promise and a testimony to God's fulfillment of his plan. In Abel's death, what we witness is what we might expect in a sin-fallen world. In Abel's death, what we see is what we oftentimes get for following Christ faithfully. But in Enoch's life, we are reminded of what we receive in Christ and what we will receive in eternity. Let me ask you, friends, this morning, do you have hope of a future resurrection? Because we receive actually the same mocking. We hear the same voices that Enoch faced. In fact, in Second Peter, we see it this way. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, we receive that same mocking that Enoch faced, that Adam faces. Where's this promise of this coming Messiah? Well, now we, as we're waiting for the return of the Messiah, we receive those same voices saying, what's this promise that you're going to get a glorious new resurrected body? Where, where, where's this promise? Where's this promise of the coming of the Lord? He hasn't come. Now, friends, let us look and see 
that the Lord took Enoch as a testimony to his fulfillment of his promises. And let us look to our resurrected Lord, knowing that he was resurrected and ascended on high as ours promise for us. So who was this Enoch? In Hebrews chapter five or 11, chapter 11, verse 5, it says he pleased the Lord. It says he pleased the Lord. And it says that his taking was a testimony. It says it testified, God himself testified as Enoch having pleased the Lord. So who is this Enoch that it says he pleased the Lord? Well, we have to look in a couple places. We turn to Genesis in chapter 5, where we actually read of Enoch. Let me read verse 21 through 24 of Enoch, Genesis chapter 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This is incredible that we see in Enoch, and I just want to get the first taste of Enoch, who he is, as we learn this in Jude, and you can also do it by just simply counting from the generations from Adam, is he is the seventh from Adam in the line of Seth. And now what this is, is significant, I think the New Testament is pointing out something significant for us, because if you look at the, through the line of Cain, the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain is a man named Lamech. And if we just kind of get an idea is if the, the pinnacle of that line of Seth is going to be found in Enoch, what we actually see is the seventh through the line of Cain is the pinnacle in a man named Lamech. And this is what we read of Lamech. It says this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Luther rightly called the line of Cain the church of Satan. And when you get to the seventh from Adam through the line of Cain, you see the pinnacle of wickedness coming through that line of Cain. That he's bragging, in fact, many commentaries note this is a song of he's singing of death. Isn't it interesting how much of the culture of music embraces the braggadocious nature of killing people and the violence that we see? Well, that's because that's the line of Cain. That's the line of the serpent that glories in death, that glories in violence. And so as you get to that, that seventh from Adam through Cain, you see the pinnacle of wickedness. But then when you get to the seventh through the line of Seth, you get to this righteous man, Enoch. And so the first thing that we see of him is this stark contrast that he walks with God, whereas Lamech walks counter to God. 
Whereas Enoch loves life and wants to see human flourishing, Cain and the line of Cain and Lamech brag about taking life. You know, it's amazing as you read of the line of Cain. Much more is said of the line of Cain and Lamech in Genesis than Enoch. Because what we actually read is through that line of Cain, we see all of these great accomplishments. As you read of the line of Cain, you read of how they were successful, they were innovative, how they were inventive, how they were changing and making society progress. And when we come to Enoch, we don't see anything that he contributed to the advancement of society. We just simply read these words, he walked with God. Let that sink in for a minute. Now this phrase is essentially the same as he pleased God, which we read in Hebrews. And so we should see them as being very similar. He pleased God. He walked with God. And the the idea here of of pleasing God or or walking with God, I think we can get a glimpse of what this, this means in Hebrews. In chapter 10, and speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And what this is relationship to this is the fact that he walked with the Lord and meaning he lived by faith. And that idea of living by faith is obedience to the Lord. And so he walked by faith. He walked with the Lord. He pleased the Lord. These are all saying the same thing. And this is a a tremendous statement. It's a remarkable statement because it's only said of Noah and Enoch, and later in Malachi it's said of Levi. Abraham is said by God to, to walk before him, so he's commanded to walk. And so it's actually a remarkable statement that this is said about Enoch. It's not as if you read through these uh, Old Testament saints and read that they all walked with the Lord. I mean, you can surmise that from their lives, but that specific designation, he walked with God, is unique. The previous time we find the word walking with God is in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve are doing what? Hiding from the Lord because of their sin, because of their alienation with the Lord. And so walking with the Lord is rather something fantastic. Now we ourselves are repeatedly exhorted to walk in the ways of the Lord, and we're, we're warned, do not walk contrary to me. But the idea that we are walking with the Lord attributed to Enoch sets him apart as something Special. So, other than living by faith, what does it, what does it mean to walk with God? Well, Malachi describes it this way in Malachi two four through six. So you shall, you so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. 
He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. And so what does this mean is that he walked faithfully before the Lord, following the word of the Lord. He walked in a trueness of heart of loving the Lord, his God with all his heart, his mind, his soul. He, did, he turned others away from iniquity, meaning that he preached that they themselves would follow the Lord. And so as we think about what this means to walk with God, it is to walk with God in peace and uprightness, and a turn from iniquity. It's a tremendous statement to be said of that he walked with God. I, I want to give us six things to think about, about what this means from the life of Enoch, of what it means that he walked with God. The first thing is this, and that we learn from his life, walking with God requires that one has been made righteous. One has been made righteous. And that is that there is no longer a barrier between the sinner and God, but they have been justified by faith. One cannot walk with God apart from justification. And it is that same justification and that same righteousness that we receive, a legal declaration that you are just before a holy God is what was applied to Enoch. As the blood of the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world was applied to Enoch by faith. He's declared righteous so that there is no barrier between him and God. Just as God covered Adam and Eve, God, by his grace, covers Enoch through faith. That he walks in righteousness because he has been made righteous. It's not a righteousness of his own, Enoch continues to be a sinner. Enoch continues to struggle with sin. Enoch continues to face temptations throughout his life. But he is named righteous and declared righteous by the blood of Christ, just as if you were in Christ this morning. That barrier has been removed. And so if you were to walk with the Lord, one cannot walk with the Lord apart from the righteousness of Christ applied. There's a second thing that we see what it means to walk with God and that we can learn from the, the life of Enoch, and that is fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. This is communion with God, that he walked with God, that metaphorical, metaphorical use of that word that he pleased God, that he was in fellowship with God, he was communing with God, and that Enoch was, uh, offered right sacrifices in his worship of God, that Enoch, by faith, presented sacrifice to the Lord at the appointed time as, as a type and a, as a sign for the future sacrifice promise. He had a special awareness of the presence of the Almighty God, just as we saw last week with Abel. 
and Cain that they were aware of a special presence of God. Israel is said to have recognized this in Deuteronomy 23:14, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see any indecent among you and turn away. Notice what it says here. The Lord walks in the midst of your camp, and so therefore you must be holy. That is speaking of the presence of the Lord with his people. And so what he experiences is a special presence and fellowship and communion with the Lord. How did this look for him other than his worship? Certainly it meant he prayed to the Lord. Certainly it meant he reflected upon the Lord's word and would go to the Lord at special times. You know, I want you to think of something with me for a second. The Lord Jesus tells us he was going to send the Spirit to dwell with his people. Jesus says, I'm going away, and it's better for you that I do. Otherwise, I won't send the Spirit. In other words, Jesus dwells with his people by his Spirit. This is why the the New Testament calls us the temple of God. They were the special dwelling place of God. Well, the temple was to be able to be a place for the people to go and meet God and that God's special presence would be there. The New Testament describes the temple in this way as the people of God, the, the special presence and dwelling of God. Are you aware of this presence of the Lord in your life? Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 14 that the triune God dwells with his people. Do you have fellowship with the God that made you? If you are in Christ, the presence of God is always with you and never departs from you. Do we recognize the presence of God with us as we walk through this life? Do we walk with the Lord in all situations? Or do, do, we just, do we just walk with the Lord for that hour that we set aside on the Lord's day? Or is our life a continual walking recognition of the presence of the Lord and that, the, and that God himself calls us his special temple, his special dwelling place, that he dwells within his people? And do we live our lives in recognition that God, who created and sustains all things and is ruling over all things, is dwelling in me? Walking with the Lord meant fellowship, meant communion, meant time with the Lord. But there's a third thing. He never lost satisfaction in the Lord. He never lost satisfaction in the Lord. He was never fulfilled in life apart from the Lord, but only in the Lord. Consider a thought. He never lost satisfaction in the Lord. That's how he could walk with the Lord for 300 years. 
He was always satisfied in the Lord. But isn't losing satisfaction in God the start of every sin? Isn't the loss of satisfaction in God the source of every wicked thought, of every transgression? It begins with our losing satisfaction in the Lord, that we're not satisfied in God, and we're not satisfied in His providence, we're not satisfied with how our lives have turned out, and we're not satisfied with the things that we have. And so, doesn't all sin begin there with a loss of satisfaction in our God who has made us and having a yearning for something outside of the Lord a a fulfillment that we might find in someone else or in something else other than knowing that in Christ we have all of the riches that are given to us Isn't this why Paul writes, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is why he goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He was satisfied in Christ. Are you satisfied knowing you are in Christ? as you face the trials and the difficulties and the pains of this life? Are you you content in every situation because Christ dwells by His Spirit with you? Or is there other things that have to fulfill us outside of Christ that take priority over Christ, which we know then turns into idolatry, doesn't it? Friends, do you walk with God? Do you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ through this life? Then find your satisfaction in the Lord and in the Lord alone. There's a, there's a fourth thing, and that, that is that, that Enoch prioritized his life of living for God. That, that was his, his focus we read of Enoch in Jude chapter, or chap, there's no chapters in Jude, Jude verse 14 and 15. We read this in Jude 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is an incredible passage of Enoch that we're told here. And the first thing that you notice, it says he prophesied, that is he spoke. He preached to his generation of people. And specifically, we're told that he preached warnings of them. Flee from the wrath that is to come. The Lord will return in judgment. It means that Enoch knew from the preaching of Adam that God not only offered eternal life, but that his coming judgment was near. So he preached warnings. How difficult this must have been, huh? Because his generation, we might think, oh, it wasn't as bad or as difficult as it is for us. 
It's much harder for us to do this than it would have been for Enoch. Well, I don't think we take seriously what the Scriptures tells us about his generation and the wickedness of his generation, how great it was. As you get to Genesis chapter 6 and you read that every thought of man was bent on wickedness, and that's not speaking of, of it just happening at chapter 6, but that's just speaking of what man is apart from regeneration. That is what man is apart from being born again. As they walk in darkness, they, they follow the prince and powers and principalities of this world. They follow the God of this world. That's just speaking of our natural, what we inherit in Adam. As we're brought into this world. There was a great wickedness he had to preach in front of. There was great mocking that he had to deal with and contend with every time he spoke. And so what does this tell us about Enoch? Is he, was, he was bold and he was courageous for the Lord as he preached. Jude describes that generation as grumblers, malcontents, following their sinful desires that they were loud-mouthed boasters. And so you can imagine that as he would preach of the promise how they would speak against him, how they would mock him, and how he spoke in the midst of a wicked generation. And so he shared Christ with those that hated him, is also what that means, doesn't it? It means he shared of the promise and the hope of eternal life that his generation could have, and they hated him because of this message, which means this is Enoch had to show continual patience, kindness, and grace. He had to live above reproach so that nothing could be pinned upon him. So they couldn't just simply say, oh, you're a hypocrite. You speak one thing but live another way. No, he had to live the life with it. Which is incredible is that his testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ was matched by his lifestyle. You know, you think about what we profess if we say we follow Christ, if we trust in Christ, we believe in Christ, we love Christ. Does our life match it? Enoch's life, by God's grace, matched that which he said. And it's incredible when you think about it because Enoch did not have all of the, the light that we have today. And just consider that for a moment. Enoch only had a few pieces of the puzzle. He knew about right worship. He knew about blood sacrifice. He knew about the, the promise of the Messiah and that in the Messiah there would be eternal life. He knew that the sacrifices were to, to be presenting a forward picture of Christ. He, he knew these things, but he only had pieces of the puzzle. But what do we have? We have the, the full testimony. We have the full canon of God's word that's given to us. And we have 2,000 years of men dealing with this text of Scripture teaching the church and the power of the Spirit. But we can look up on our phones at any time. You can go and read the great three theologians of time and read what they had to say. If you want to know what Calvin thought about a certain verse or what, what did Spurgeon preach on something, you just have to go to your phone and look it up. Imagine the light we have today and with what little light Enoch had, he was faithful to proclaim the promises of Christ. Do we do with all that we have as 
Enoch did with how little he had. But he did have the word of God. Little or a lot, the word of God was sufficient. And he rested upon that. He, he did this while raising a family and providing for them. It, it tells us in Genesis, as we read, that he had children. He was raising children. He was a parent. He had to provide for them. And in 300 years, I'm guessing he had probably quite a few children that he had to provide for and train and teach. But yet then when we read of God's testimony of him in the New Testament, it says that he preached, that he proclaimed Christ while raising a family and providing for them because his priority was Christ. Enoch is a, is a demonstration for us that God's word cannot be vanquished even in the midst of great darkness. You might think Enoch prophesied and you might say, well, I'm not a prophet. That would be a wrong way to think. Friends, Enoch simply spoke of God's revelation. And we have the full revelation of God's word before us. We have a completed canon. We actually have far more than Enoch had. So let us by faith proclaim the promise. And let us proclaim that the promise has arrived and has completed his task of crushing the head of the serpent and is returning again. That is our message. There's a fifth thing. He had an assurance of God. And you think about this. He walked with God, it says, for 300 years. You have to have an assurance of God to walk with God. You have to have an assurance of God, an assurance of salvation, to preach to a wicked generation. That requires an assurance of God. What is assurance? Well, the Second London Confession of Faith says assurance is this, those that truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. Our very confession testifies that the Christian may have an assurance of faith. I mean, God's Word tells us this, and that's why the confession says it in 1 John 4, 13. By this we may know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. We may know that we know. Friends, we may know that we are in Christ and have assurance of that. Do you, do you have assurance of faith? This is one of the, the struggles that so many have. Do you have that peace in heart? Do you have comfort of the Spirit's presence as a, as a reminder that you are children of God by adoption? You, you cannot preach to a wicked generation without assurance of faith. You cannot be a faithful Christian walking with God without assurance of faith. To lack assurance is a difficult place for many Christians, and it's debilitating to them to lack assurance. 
Even the great John Bunyan suffered a lack of assurance. And it's amazing that when Bunyan finally came to a point of assurance of faith, how he so boldly preached for the Lord Jesus Christ, even to the point of jail. But before he received that assurance, he struggled with it, and he even tells of how his soul was in turmoil. In his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, Bunyan writes this, and listen carefully. He says, I was sick in my inward man. My soul was clogged with guilt. Now also was my former experience of God's goodness to me quite taken out of my mind, and here it is as if it had never been nor seen. Now was my soul greatly pinched between these two considerations. Live I must not die I dare not. Now I sunk and fell in my spirit, and I was giving up all for lost. But as I was walking up and down in the house as a man in a most woeful state, that word of God took hold of my heart. Ye are justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that word of God captured the heart of Bunyan he goes on to say, it was as if the father said to him, Sinner, thou thinkest that because of thy sins and infirmities I cannot save thy soul, but behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on thee, and will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. So, dear friends, if you lack assurance, you look to the Lord Jesus Christ because you know the Father doesn't look upon you. He looks upon Christ and he sees Christ's obedience. He sees Christ's righteousness. He sees the love that Christ gave and he sees that instead of seeing you. That is the righteousness. And this changed Bunyan's life. To the point that he would preach Christ so boldly that he would go to jail. And when he was told, you're going to go back to jail if we release you and you preach again. And Bunyan would say, go ahead and release me. I'll be back again because I'm going to keep preaching Christ. You can't preach Christ apart from an assurance of faith. The cost is too high. That's why Enoch could preach Christ, assurance of faith, walking with the Lord and preaching and proclaiming boldly, boldly, Christ goes hand in hand. He had an assurance of faith. And there's a, there's a sixth thing that, that we need to see, is he was singularly focused on the glory of God. Now, how do I know this, that he was singularly focused? By the way, Enoch was a man. He wasn't perfect, as I've already stated. He was righteous only by the blood of Christ. Only by the blood of Christ. But he lived a righteous life, and he had a singular focus for the glory of God. And how do I know this? Well, you can see this by just contrasting for a moment, and I alluded to this earlier, the line of Cain. When you look at the line of Cain and you see what the line of Cain was focused on, you see a stark difference between Cain's line and Seth's line. In fact, we read this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, not our Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So what do you see is from the line of Cain is this already this idea of building cities, of building places, and, 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 and building really earthly kingdoms. 
You go on to read of the line of Cain, Adah bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and part, uh, pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was a forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. And what do we see in this line of Cain is this inventive nature, this progressing of human society, advancing of human society, that they're innovative and they're inventive and they're making things to help out. Now, is that because they were more gifted than the line of Seth? I don't think so. I don't think that that's what it's trying to say. I think it demonstrates a different priority how they lived their life is that the line of Seth lived with their eye upon the promise that this, this world is not our home, but there's something greater awaiting us. And so they lived for that, whereas Cain w was rooted in the dirt. In many ways, he worshipped the the dirt and did not live for the promises of a greater home. And so Enoch wasn't about those things. Now, did Enoch benefit from those things? Yeah, just like we, we benefit from those things. It's not that advancement was bad. So don't hear me saying that. It's not that technology was bad. I just think that the text is showing us the simple fact there was a greater priority for those things in the line of Cain than there was in the line of Seth. And certainly we know God uses advancements in technology. How is it that the, the ark floated with pitch? And the discovery of that. God uses technology for his purposes. It just demonstrates that, that the line of Seth was living for a future promise, not here, whereas the line of Cain was living and walking hand in hand with this world, that they were concerned with building their own kingdom. Enoch was concerned with one kingdom, and that was God's. Enoch was concerned with one thing. Let me ask you, what is it that drives you What is it that you have your focus upon? Where is it that we dedicate and prioritize what time we have? Do you walk with God? Do you walk with the Lord? As you hear of Enoch and how he walked with God, I ask you to join me to search your heart. Because here's why. It could be that the Lord take you today. Do you think Enoch knew that he was going to be taken? He was taken to glory. But that idea of being taken doesn't mean necessarily that we're taken to glory. Will you face the Lord? bringing forth the fruit of your hands like Cain? Or will you be like Abel that you bring forth a blood sacrifice knowing that it was Christ? If you were to be taken, when you open your eyes, 
Well, the Lord said, you have walked with me. Let me ask you this morning, do you walk with God? Have you been justified by faith and declared righteous so there is no longer a barrier between you and God? For if the Lord were to take you today, it's eternal punishment. It's eternal death. So if the Lord were to take you today, do you stand as Enoch stood in the righteous blood of Christ? Or do you stand with the fruit of your own hands before the Lord, which he will reject and cast away and say, I never knew you? And if you can say amen to that, friends, I say walk with the Lord. And consider Enoch, our brother who came before us, and how by God's grace he walked because he had been made righteous by the same righteousness that we are made righteous. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the truth of the gospel that spares us from the torments of hell, but also enables us to walk with you. For apart from your grace, apart from salvation, none would walk with you, but all would turn aside to their own vain glory. Father, may we never do that by your grace. And for any that do not know the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray that, Father, that you would call them now and that they would turn to you and they would look upon the Lord Jesus and cry out for help, for we know he loves to give it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.